Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is produced on Gadigal land. The grief that I had was so intense that I channeled my grief into that hospital and I didn't care what anyone thought of me. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I am absolutely thrilled and delighted to welcome a woman I've watched for a very long time whose husband I knew a little, and I think Australia loved him. And, of course, we lost the one and only Chris O'Brien, but his legacy is the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, and his beautiful wife, Gail O'Brien AO, joins us here this morning at Short Black. It's so great to have you in the studio, Gail. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Sandra. We all, I think, had encounters with Chris, either watching him on the telly and then when he was diagnosed with cancer and then the incredible... Well, all the fundraising efforts, really, to build the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse because it was a point in time when there was nothing else like it in the country. Do you remember those early days and why the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is so unique? Oh, I'll never forget those early days, I have to say. Well, you're right. Chris was well known because of the reality TV show, The RPA Show, which sort of became the Chris O'Brien show. It was a bit of a joke at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital where he was a head and neck surgeon. And then he became the Sydney Cancer Centre director. So he was the second Sydney Cancer Centre director. Sydney Cancer Centre had been set up with just about two years before when Professor Jim Bishop came from Melbourne at the request of the CEO of the Sydney Local Health Area to try and do something and address cancer, the burden of cancer in um, Sydney and New South Wales. But he was really only in the job maybe a couple of years and I remember Chris coming home and saying, Jim has resigned. We were gobsmacked about that. But then Chris was appointed, which was unusual for a surgeon who would normally go to non-colleges because a surgeon has such a huge workload in terms of, you know, patients want their hands doing the surgery. But at that time, Chris had a um, dream to create a centre of excellence, a bit like the ones that they have in the United States. And Chris had worked in those uh, centres, like the MD Anderson and uh, Sloan Kettering and so forth. And we had nothing like that in Australia. So that's where the idea came from. And I, I remember when we One time he inherited a group of wonderful women who were doing some fundraising for the Sydney Cancer Centre and we were driving to the chair of that organisation's house and Chris and I talked about the possibility of building something from scratch because he inherited a plan to raise the roof on a part of Royal Prince Alfred Hospital called Gloucester House And we'd both worked in there. I'd worked there as a physiotherapist and he as a young doctor. And 
It's a heritage order building and very difficult to do much with and was adding an extra floor going to create a centre of excellence for cancer. He wouldn't accept that, would he? No. So that was kind of the seed of the idea. And then he obviously was able, as you know, you knew him. He had a very engaging personality. He really did. Yeah, he was able to engage people with his ideas and vision because he was so energetic and also very charismatic. Yeah, he did have this warmth. Yes, you're right, it was charisma, but it was a compassion-driven kind of energy, wasn't it? Yeah. You knew that if anyone could pull this off, it was him. He sold the idea, the concept of this multidisciplinary, holistic, one-stop shop for cancer. Now, that sounds cheap and nasty, but really there was nothing like it in Australia. No, there wasn't. The closest to it was the very well-respected Peter McCallum Institute in Melbourne, but even that was chemotherapy and research at the time. So it was not a comprehensive cancer centre. So yes, it was innovative, it was visionary, and uh, the irony of the story, of course, is that despite his um, energy to push this forward, he then uh, was diagnosed with a lethal form of brain tumour called glioblastoma multiforme in 2006. So he'd been in the job for three years and then had this horrible diagnosis. Did he get to see Lifehouse built at all? Not at all. I think that he'd be surprised at how large it is and how comprehensive it actually is. He worked on it until the day he dropped, I must say. And it was Really interesting because the people he put on the board at the time, the person who stepped into his position as uh, Sydney Cancer Centre Director, Professor Michael Boyer, who's now our CEO, all these people would come to Chris too as though he was going on a long journey somewhere and he was like the godfather of this and we need to get as much information from him before he goes on this journey. And I just felt like a, a witness to all of this incredible stuff going on but never thinking that I was going to be involved. In fact, I used to think, heaven help anyone who takes this on. But you had to. Well, it was just that there was a bit of a watershed moment, I have to say. I was asked to be on the board three months after Chris died. Of course I said yes. You would have wanted to see that legacy be fulfilled and make sure his dream and vision was real. Absolutely. But at that time when I was asked, I didn't know what my role would be other than as a figurehead. But then one of the board members with whom Chris was very friendly, in fact saved his life four times and he's still alive and well, took me with his wife to his farm and told me some home truths about how he saw the board at the time and how basically he wanted me to step up and, you know, I just thought, for heaven's sake, I'm just a little physiotherapist, what do you want me to do? That's what was the catalyst for my stepping up and working with my sister, she's a branding person, working with architects he'd spoken to and strategy people, and really understanding what they were doing in the United States in terms of patient-centered care for patients in an environment that was a friendly environment with light and natural materials and, you know, a sense of place. So I put that forward and uh, wanted to do a presentation at the board. There was a lot of pushback because there were very, very, um, there were all businessmen on the board and, you know, suddenly I step in and uh, want to change things. So 
I don't know how much I can say about all this because it was a very, very difficult time, I have to say. I don't think it's very well documented and I don't want you to say anything you're uncomfortable with, but at the end of the day, you did have to step in and step up to protect Chris's legacy and the vision that, that he wanted. It must have been incredibly daunting for you. I mean, everyone who sat in this chair has always talked about the imposter syndrome. Now, you were a physiotherapist and Chris's lifelong love and partner and mother of his children, etc., etc. You're comfortable in the medical world, but Sitting on a board is a different bag of tricks, let alone being asked to ruffle many feathers. You're quite right. I was experienced in the medical world, but very inexperienced with boards and um, what's the right protocol with that and so forth. But I knew I'd lived it. (laughs) I'd lived it with Chris and I'd lived it with his patients that he had as well. And I knew what was needed in terms of holistic, compassionate, multidisciplinary care for patients in an environment that's scientific and evidence-based and Chris was very emphatic that it needed to be bench to bedside care so where research and practice are totally integrated. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense to those who haven't experienced it or haven't had access to Chris O'Brien Lifehouse and as I mentioned to you as we were coming in today I wanted to dedicate this podcast to my very dear and late friend, Ginny Bellman, who passed from ovarian cancer. But she was a patient at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse and at times at RPA across the road. She sang its praises at the most profound level, as did her husband. And it was understanding that if you needed another specialist, you weren't waiting another three days to get another appointment, have to traipse to another part of the city. Everything was there that she needed. It made such a significant and profound difference to someone undergoing life-threatening illness, knowing that your runway is coming to a close. You're dealing with so much. It's so important, isn't it, to have, as you say, not just a one-stop shop, but to have that care and compassion, to have light and windows in the room. She could see greenery. She wanted me to bring up my beloved Kiko. She was Kiko's godmother. And you allowed dogs at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. (laughs) It's those little touches constantly that she couldn't get anywhere else. And it made such a difference to those final few months of her life. Yes, well, I I think patients feel like it's more a home than a uh, hospital. It doesn't smell like a hospital when you come in. And there's a certain feel about it as well. People say as soon as they step in the doors, they feel this sense of something. I always think it's Chris's spirit around the place. Johnny Ruffo passed in our hospital and his family had come from Perth. We were able to look after his family as though they were our own family. It's just what we do now. We don't pull out all stops for somebody who's well-known. We do it for, we're very egalitarian and I'm proud of that vision that we've achieved for social awareness and despite your insurance cover, we look after everybody. So we are a private hospital that takes public patients, which is a very unique model in Australia. But I think it lessens the burden of cancer generally and also on the state budget the health budget. 
What have you learned about cancer since you've taken over this role? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. It's a a really strange disease because um, people don't understand it and they think, how did I get this? I mean, you know, the physiology of cancer is that cells just misbehave and normally they divide and multiply and die off. They don't keep dividing and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and forming a, a mass and then infiltrating other places they're not meant to infiltrate. All sorts of things can cause that or trigger it. But one person might be exposed to something, the same thing as another person, and they don't get cancer. Or they might be exposed to the same stresses as another person, but the stresses give that one person cancer and not the other. And, of course, there's going to be a genetic predisposition, I'm sure. And then in terms of treatment, one person might respond and another person doesn't. But that's all very science-driven, like it depends what your genetic makeup is, what the genome type is, and all that sort of thing. So I'm not a scientist, but I know that much. So we don't always respond the same way, and that's, that's just life. What have you learned about yourself in this journey? Um, well, I've always been a coper. <laughs> you had to be a coper looking after Chris O'Brien. <laughs> Was he ever home? He just worked so hard, didn't he? Oh, you know, he was a wonderful father and friend and he definitely was always home and always tried to be home by, you know, seven. But, you know, he'd often be called out if there was, in the evening, if there was something that the registrar couldn't handle. He worked very hard, but he was that sort of driven personality, which I thought thing actually gave him brain tumour in the end. Nothing was ever enough. He was always doing the next thing and the next thing. I mean, he wasn't satisfied just to be a head and neck surgeon and the best head and neck surgeon in the country. He had to take on being the director of the Sydney Cancer Centre and then he ends up with two full-time jobs. And I was always saying, we've got to take something off the list here. (laughs) (laughs) Your daughter was a journalist and she wrote your biography, which was called This Is Gail. This was in 2016. But she also wrote that patients would line up to listen to Dad, but carers would line up to speak to Mum. You're pretty much uh, a patient's advocate these days, aren't you? Yes, I was asked to take on that role about seven years ago by the CEO at the time. The moment she suggested that to me, it felt right. What is a patient's advocate? It's evolved over time, over the seven years, I have to say. So initially it was, you know, and obviously a patient advocate is someone who's advocating for things that the patients need. So often it'll be... Because I'm well-steeped in the medical world, I, it's, it's a language to me, so I can translate for them. You know, it's a lot of problem-solving. When the doctor has to give bad news, for example, and needs somebody to sit with them, then that's where I have the time to just be with them. So I'm not, not a psychologist, but I'll do a lot of referring to the psychology team. I do a lot of referrals to the right people. I advocated for us to have palliative care in the hospital and developing those relationships with people who can help us, like politicians and so forth, getting funding for pal care and so forth. I think it actually makes a big difference to the clinicians. The clinicians do seek me out to help with sort of combustible situations and patients do trust me because they know I've been through what they're going through and I do understand when you talked about palliative care, it reminded me 
that's an alarming term for people experiencing cancer because they feel like their journey is coming to a rather hasty end. But palliative care nurses specialise as much in pain management as anything else, don't they? Yes, I know people are very afraid of that word palliation. And I am such a strong advocate for palliative care because Chris wanted to keep his palliative care friends at arm's length because he wanted to live (laughs) and um, ultimately came back to bite us because at the time that he had a, a major pain crisis at home, he knew he was dying and we had no access to morphine. We had no palliative care person to just pick up the phone. We had no lifeline other than the oncologist who, you know, they're not a palliative care physician. She would just say, she just said, bring him in for a scan and he needed pain relief. And can't ring a GP at that point because they've got a waiting room full of patients. And then so I rang the um, ambulance. So they came. And of course, time's getting away when somebody's actually dying and in agony. They arrived and they didn't have morphine on the ambulance because that's only on an ICU ambulance. So we had to wait for the next ambulance to come. And meanwhile, I was helpless with Chris's situation. And he just said to me, don't let me die in pain. That sort of haunts me. But we had the hospital bed and everything there for him to die at home. Dying at home is not an easy process. There is no way in the world I could have done that. It's all very fantastic in theory, but in reality. So the, the ambulance arrived. I always remember this because the paramedic strolled in like John Wayne and said, no, can't give morphine unless you sign here to say he's going to go to the hospital. And eventually I just signed and um, we packed him into the ambulance. But by the time he got to RPA, he was unconscious. So it was as close as that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Chris O'Brien Lifehouse treats 60,000 people a year. Yes. It's the only facility of its type in New South Wales, isn't it? How do you feel for those that can't get there? One of the things we have been working on is our regional outreach. So we do have about 12 centres in regional centres and the patients come to us for their really specialised surgery and they can go back to the regional centres and have support from our centre to, to look after them. But you're right, I was really surprised as I was at the Premier's Awards for Research Excellence and There was still conversation after all these years about research excellence is not just about the research and someone looking down a microscope. 
It is about the, the secretary who greets them. It is about the allied health. It is about all these other things. And I was thinking, but that's what we've done. <laughs> Are we still talking about that's what we need? Well, that's the thing, Gail. I mean, he was such a visionary. And Chris O'Brien Lifehouse has transformed treatment to the next sort of universe. Now, we're here to celebrate, obviously, what you and Chris have achieved and, and you are managing that legacy. But for those listening who, who, who haven't experienced cancer, and let's face it, we all will either directly or indirectly, but if you don't fully appreciate why it's so important, it used to be like being on hold, you know, to one of those airlines. If you've ever cared for people who are unwell, you're just on an interminable hold because you can't make sense or get through to where you need to get through. And it's, I find it just gobsmacking that you could be at a, a state awards in the medical profession and they're still saying that's the holy grail. Why is it so slow? What, what, what is, it, is it funding? Why, why does it take forever to fix this problem? Well, I think it's, it is resources. You're quite right. When Chris and I, and he was the director of the Sydney Cancer Centre, and yet we found it so fragmented. The clinicians and the staff were wonderful, but it was this system and this fragmentation of having to go from one place to another, uh, nobody collaborating. Your point of difference is you have a team of people, whoever's required, the expert panel looking after you, but they all talk and then they come and talk to you. Yes. It seems so obvious, and yet it doesn't happen. Well, I mean, Sandra, I can only do what I can do <laughs> in the one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to fix the whole frigging problem. <laughs> You've no idea how many people say to me, can't we put another Chris O'Brien Lifehouse somewhere else? Like even in other states, people say that to me. Oh, look, the people who have come together to make this happen Many, many people, and we've helped so many people, but it really has come down, you know, in our hospital. What makes the difference? You know, all the specialised care, but also the coming together of people, the multidisciplinary teams, allied health, nursing, every person who's involved in a person's care comes together in a very large room with a screen showing potentially the patient is in another room having a scope, so you can see on the screen, everyone sees what's, say it's a head and neck patient. Everyone is seeing what the surgeon is seeing looking down the scope. So that's so reassuring for patients and I, it gives them hope when they are worried about the doctor that might be looking after them. I say, it's not just one doctor, it's a whole team. And he will be getting advice or he she will be getting advice. And the thing is that we have people with very advanced cancers and very complex cancers. They're not just simple things. So doctors rely on their colleagues to give them advice and support and so on. Not only that, um, in the multidisciplinary team, is the oncologist who's the supportive care oncologist. So your friend would made use of what we call the living room, which is an area devoted to supportive care complementary therapies and so forth because the results of having all of this treatment can make a patient very, very debilitated. 
and they need help. Um, and so we address all that. I mean, intractable nausea, for example, acupuncture works so well with that. And I remember I had a patient who was hiccuping all the time as a result of the treatment. The acupuncturist went up and cured him. <laughs> I'm making light of it, but you know there are just that person is in in the multidisciplinary team as well, not just the surgical multidisciplinary meetings, but also in the medical ones. What made you and Chris combine the traditional medicines with with holistic? Because that's unusual in itself, isn't it? It was our own personal experience, because a lot of people reached out to Chris with their, well, as Chris would say, snake oil and so forth. So it was a matter of working out what he would try and what he didn't. One of the things he did try and became dependent on was meditation because that's just going back like he was diagnosed in 2006. You know, meditation back then wasn't quite as spoken of in medical circles, definitely not. He tried lots of different complementary things from homeopaths and so forth and he realized that one of the, a journalist asked him in the last few days of his life, what have you learned from your experience, Chris? And he said that cancer care has to be holistic. So that's another thing that I have pushed very hard that we absolutely cannot do without, that we have to make work in the hospital in terms of funding and so forth. Sadly, after losing Chris, it was a couple of years later that you lost your son from an epileptic seizure, I understand, in his sleep. Mm-hmm. Carl, you've had your share of loss, haven't you? How have you overcome those painful chapters? What's helped you? You know, uh, someone said something this morning that advocacy heals a broken heart. (laughs) And I thought, that's such a great phrase. And um, it does. You know, I mean, Adam's death was sudden. In many ways, I feel unfortunate because people can't say to me, oh, at least you had time to say goodbye to Chris, at least, like, it softens the blow. People forget about Adam, (laughs) because Chris was such a big person, and Adam was a beautiful person, he was only 29, and I often, I think he just died from a broken heart. These seizures just started a year after Chris died, and they would only happen in his sleep, He was being treated at neurosciences at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital just to see what was going on, but it was really inconclusive, and I felt a little bit nonchalant as well. (laughs) So all of these have kind of driven me. I mean, young men can have a seizure and then they never have another one, but Adam, the fifth one, he was just at his girlfriend's mother's place, and she went. uh, His girlfriend went off nursing at six a.m. He saw her off. And then when she came home, he'd passed away. I don't know how any parent survives that because it would be every parent's worst nightmare. So you've lost the love of your life and one of your children. You've got two others. You have another son and a daughter. But Chris was, you know, the glue, wasn't he? You were such a tight couple and he spoke so glowingly about you all. Oh, he loved us to bits. He used to say that I was the glue that held us all together. But he was such a powerhouse, as you know. From the moment he got up in the morning, it was a whirlwind and I'd pull the garage door down and just go breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) So what was it like for you having to step up at that time? Do you remember what it took for you to actually deliver the vision your husband wanted? 
that takes a special person. Yes, you're grieving, but you still actually had to do that. Oh, well, absolutely. My sister, who was the branding person, we went through every email Chris had ever written to various people about this hospital and how it should be. And so we got a, a good picture of how the vision statement should be to present. And if it wasn't going to be the way it should, because Chris's name is more than a name down the side of the building, it represents something for people, I think. Mm. And if it wasn't going to be like that, then there's no point in having his name attached to it. That was my feeling. And Chris had said to me, I don't want my name on a lemon. <laughs> so suddenly there was this huge responsibility. I have to say that my advocacy for it to be something, and it was more than advocacy, it was a fight to have it changed the architecture and everything to something that was represented a, a holistic space that was nurturing and safe for people, even though it's very large. Everything changed because at, at one point I just said to the chairman, well, I'm considering my position on this board and so long, basically. That took courage though because, you know, as a journo, if that had got out that you were ready to walk because they weren't going to deliver his vision, that was a tough call that you made. It was and I didn't know how it was going to be received but that's what changed everything, everything. But that must have been incredibly rewarding knowing that, you know, they stood up and, and took note. Sandra, I had to look fear in the face over and over again. I can't tell you. And then the other thing is that the board was so... Um, it was made up of people I really respect as businessmen and so forth. But um, so I'm going to tell you something that happened that was really terrible. So after Adam died, there was just so much testosterone, if you like, and constant trying to put me down, patronise me. So I never missed a board meeting. There was a board meeting uh, like within the two weeks after he died and not one person recognised Adam's, Adam's death at the board meeting. Okay. I just thought that was pretty bad. But that says everything, really, because the dream was to be a holistic, multidisciplinary, caring facility. You had just lost your son and nobody thought to say, Gail. Well, they came to the funeral. Some of them did. But it obviously, in, in that setting, it just shows you what maybe a boardroom's like. I don't know. And so I, uh, you know, obviously I responded or reacted to this and sent an email to our chairman at the time. I'm the sort of person you're meant to be looking after. How on earth do you think we're going to achieve this if you don't even know how to respond to my situation, you know? I'm not asking for much. You know, the experience, clearly, that you've lived, not just with the loss of your husband and your son, but stepping out of the role of mum, physiotherapist, wife, to board director and the face of Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. You're the heart and soul of that place now. How do you think it's changed or influenced your approach to families when you're in there? Well, your personality is your personality, isn't it? I don't, I'm not putting anything on. I've got a naturally sort of empathetic way, I suppose. 
I did physiotherapy and that's a very holistic profession anyway. So there aren't many professions where you're allowed to touch these days. <laughs> I'm just me, you know, and people realise the personal history as well. Were you surrounded by, you know, a lot of difficult experiences? Does that ever get you down? No, it doesn't. I get a bit saturated sometimes, you know, you're dealing with the human condition all the time, day in, day out. Um, it's not a desk job. I'm on the wards. You know, I wear many hats in, in the hospital. We're not for profit, so that's a term that we try to say is for purpose rather than not for profit because we're not for loss either. We have a philanthropist. We really developed a, a really fantastic development team, we call them. They're so incredible. They raised about $18 million last year. So maybe we're, we're setting an example to others as well in terms of philanthropy because they are our pillar of support, the philanthropic community. There are so many things that our philanthropists support in terms of specialised nursing, specialised positions in clinical care and so forth. Well, someone like uh, Lane Walker and the Family Foundation, I see in 2020, they donated nearly $4 million to establish the first professional chair in head and neck cancer surgery. That was one of the largest gifts you've received. We've had a, another really large gift like that, the Arto Hardy Fund for Biomedical Research, but the, the Walkers themselves have been philanthropically generous as well. Do you lead that arm? Are you involved in a lot of those discussions, trying to encourage more philanthropy? Yes. Well, look, it's so interesting the way, for example, I'm involved, I'm on the foundation, which is just a small group of us, plus the development team, who are about 14 people in that team. They're fantastic at engaging and nurturing relationships. But, for example, the Arto Hardy gift was a woman and her family she reminded me just recently of how I had no idea they were wealthy, but I advocated for the mother to stay and be palliated at our hospital. And this is well before we got the palliative care funding from New South Wales Health when Dominic Perrottet was Premier. The family was from Singapore. They're from overseas. It was a pretty tricky situation. At one point, I said to the daughter, if it's funding, uh, you know, I, I was concerned they, they couldn't afford to stay here in Sydney or something. Mm -hmm. And we have hardship funds that philanthropically supported. So we would potentially help them with whatever. Turns out that they were billionaires <laughs> from Singapore. <laughs> so that sort of relationship building on the wards with the, with the family. Well, you were offering them assistance and little did you know that you would be rewarded in kind tenfold. Speaking of tenfold... Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is 10 years young. Where do you think it'll be in another 10? Well, maybe people who ask me for another one might get their wish. Who knows? Are there plans afoot? Oh, look, we really want to, and I might as well say it now, is um, get a 99-year lease because we, have a, a, we had to get it over the line with a service level agreement and all the rest of it and had to sign a 40-year lease, and we're 10 years into a 40-year lease. Okay, so clock's ticking. Clock is ticking. We need the 99-year lease so that we can also, there's another, you might have noticed, Sandra, that there's another building where all the radiation oncology goes, which is attached to us out the back. In fact, that was part of Sydney University Physiotherapy School, so I did the physio in there. 
But the roof leaks and, you know, they're always patching it up. We need funding to maybe build a whole new building. That's kind of the next thing, really. So you're lobbying already? Well, here's an opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Gail when you're not at the hospital? What makes you happy? What do you do? Well, I've never gone to a counsellor myself with uh, everything that has happened, but I have done lots of spiritual searching for to have an understanding of what life is all about. So that's a big part of my life. And um, just getting into nature and walking. I've got lots of friends whom I love uh, and we go to the theatre and, you know, I love the ballet and I love life, you know, it's very short. Before coming in here, I was just sitting and having a cup of tea at a cafe just a few doors up and some businessmen were all sitting around talking about money, 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 money. I didn't, wasn't eavesdropping, but I could hear them and I thought, what's the point in that? (laughs) Just enjoy your life. You look stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) When you have had so many setbacks, but also so many successes, what was it like um, your daughter writing your book? They had asked me to write it. I said to her, you need to write the book because I, I'm too close to all the action. We did make an effort by taking a bottle of wine and then a laptop up to a local cafe, but we both just ended up in tears and nothing written. So that was not the way to do it. It's not easy. It's very hard work writing an autobiography or a memoir. What have you learnt about grief? Uh, Look, grief is like an illness, honestly. You could go mad with grief. But um, in terms of coming through it, I think it helps people see that you can actually get through it. There is um, life after all of that. But yeah, it is maddening. And it's also not a straight line for years on end. And people who are grieving won't want to hear this that for years on end, it'll just go round and round and round. You never know when it's going to hit you. Juliet got very sick. She got thyroid cancer. That's why I've been such a proponent of the Integrative Medicine Centre. That's the complementary and alternative medicine area. Because I believe that was as a result of her terrible loss and grief. Is there anything you've been surprised to discover about yourself through this last 10 or 15 years? Yeah. I, I guess so. I guess uh, how determined I have been about making sure this is right. The grief that I had was so intense that I channeled my grief into that hospital and I didn't care what anyone thought of me. I think what I've gleaned in this conversation, though, is that there is no typical experience when it comes to cancer or grief, is there? No, there isn't. I guess it's as multifaceted as each one of us is. I think it's probably not um, common to be talking about kind of really end of life, but it's not as scary as everyone thinks, is it? No, and I guess that's our ambition. That That's our vision to make it a supportive, positive environment, even though as a cancer hospital there is a a lot of grief in the hospital and there's a lot of anticipatory grief but we have so many people who feel so safe there like we have a choir on Thursdays and all of them are patients and carers who potentially have finished treatment even and they they still want to come back to the hospital because it's a place they know and people understand them what they've been through. 
I don't think um, if it hadn't have been for Ginny, I would have understood how important the work is that is undertaken at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse and how significant it is in a cancer patient's journey. Not everyone, you know, who's listening to this podcast is going to have access to Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. What's your advice for how they should take those immediate next steps once they've been diagnosed? Look, it's such a terrifying thing to have a diagnosis of cancer and everybody receives it differently. Anyone's welcome to contact me in the first instance because I'm surrounded by so many fantastic people who can help and uh, advise and guide. And that's what people mostly want when they first... They want someone to listen as well. But we take people from all over the country and we have a very good rapid access program. But if you had a dream for the Australian health system... Oh, everywhere would be like us. <laughs> but have you had that sort of demand? Are you asking for people, you know, to give them your roadmap so that they could replicate what you're doing? Well, an oncologist once said to me, oh, Chris has made cancer centres popular. They're popping up all over the place. And certainly at Chris's funeral, Kevin Rudd spoke at that funeral and said that he was dedicate. the federal government was dedicating something like $1.2 billion to cancer. But that doesn't mean that it's going to all have the same feel that our hospital has. We've worked very hard at that feel. And I think it's also embedded in story as well. I mean, our First Nations people talk about story so much and we can learn so much from that. So having a story, St Vincent's Hospital has a story about Sisters of Charity and so forth. The story is so powerful. And that's why our brand is Chris O'Brien, because it's embedded in the story of a hero who went through exactly what everybody else is going through. So if other hospitals can have a story, I think that will help them. And it's not just, oh, government's given us some money, we'll put a building up here and dedicate it to cancer. Yeah, you need that authentic, soulful connection, don't you? Mm. What will Gail O'Brien be doing in 10 years' time? I probably will die in the job, to be honest with you, Sandra. <laughs> you say that smiling and with, a, with almost a giggle. You know yourself too well. <laughs> yes. I honestly can't see myself going anywhere because as long as Chris's name is on it and I'm a direct conduit to that vision, even if I'm only in on a Zimmer frame two days a week. <laughs> well, Gail O'Brien, it's been such a joy to have you here at Short Black. Thank you for all that you do. The Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is a, not just a testament to, to Chris, but also to you because you're the soul of that place and you bring that authentic, compassionate heart and soul to everything you do. So we wish you the best of luck. Let's just hope that philanthropists are lining up at the door to continue to support all the great work that you and your late husband continue to do. Thank you very much for having me, Sandra. I've really enjoyed it. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.